Whatever you do, don't touch that radio dial because welcome to QSO. It's all about ham radio. And boy, have we got a show for you. Today, the founder of 73 Magazine, Wayne Green. This is a vintage interview that we did back on KAIJ when we first started QSO. And we've got the first segment of that interview coming up shortly, along with an interview with Bob Grove, the fellow who puts out Monitoring Times Magazine, a fantastic communications magazine. And this man can talk about anything. And he's going to bring us up to date on a whole bunch of stuff. But this is also a vintage interview that was done back some time ago on KAIJ when we first started QSO. So stay tuned. It's all coming up right here on QSO. Here at QSO, we've got something new, and that's a prize closet. And we are in the process of filling that prize closet up. And we're going to be telling you on the air some of the items that we've got in the prize closet. If you'd like to win some of these things, we'd love to see you do that. But what you've got to do is send us an email. Go up to the website, tedrandall.com or qsoradioshow.com. And when you go to that website, just simply send us an email. Say hello. Tell us where you're listening, how the signal's coming in. If you're listening by podcast, tell us how you have joined this radio show. And then put a little note in there that says, I want to win. And we'll put your name in the hat. And we will have a drawing twice a month. And we're going to be giving away what's in our prize closet. Now, I can't tell you everything that's in there so far. But we'll be posting those items up on the website, and we'll be telling you about them on the air. But don't miss out. Send us an email and put in that email, I want to win. And let's see who the lucky winners will be. Our guest is Wayne Green. And I really don't know how to give this gentleman an introduction. Uh, And the reason why is because there's about a million different ways I could introduce him. My introduction to Wayne Green was uh, as, a, as a young man uh, reading 73 Magazine that had some of the most interesting and the most challenging editorial articles having to do with amateur radio. And uh, it just was, it was a wonderful, wonderful publication. Matter of fact, I just went through uh, a bunch of my old boxes and drug out several issues of 73. And I'm really amazed when I look at... Um, when I look at the content of this magazine, and I realize after looking at it now how much I really miss it. And that's only one facet of this gentleman that we're going to be talking with here. And uh, he's a man of, of many, many accomplishments, and so many that I think I'd make a, an idiot out of myself trying to describe him. So I'm just going to say, hello, Wayne. How are you today? I'm doing just fine there, Ted. Thank you. Uh, I would like to ask some questions about 73, though. I'd like to know um, when it was that you started that magazine. I started that back in 1960. <laughs> and uh, the purpose of it was primarily at that time to get more hams building equipment, because I'd been building equipment for many years and enjoyed it. And um, I'd been the editor of CQ magazine for five years before that. 
So uh, I got to know everybody pretty well. And they got to where they owed me so much back money, uh, owed me a year's back pay, so they fired me. <laughs> and uh, so I said, to heck, uh, I just enjoy doing this so much, I started my own magazine. I had just enough money to publish the first issue. Well, you know, I, it's interesting because I was going through my old my old issues, and I was looking at um, the, diet, the schematics of different little projects, and they were all interesting things, you know, real captivating little projects. Some of them big projects, but nonetheless, um, not, you know, and I don't want anybody to take offense to this, but I mean, I remember looking at the other amateur radio publications and a lot of the stuff they had in there was just boring. I mean, it was like, why would I want to build that, you know? But the stuff in 73 was all, always, it was cool stuff, unusual things. And you well, know, yeah, I always pushed the envelope on new technologies, new you know, pioneering new things. So when I first got started in amateur radio, VHF was the new thing, and so I built a two and a half meter transceiver using two tubes, <laughs> and uh, had a wonderful time with that. And then when narrowband FM was invented, I was one of the first ones active with that. And, of course, that's what's used now standard on most of the uh, VHF communications and so forth. I, I've been pioneering things right down through history here. Well, um, but but not just 73 Magazine. Um, uh, let me add, But let me ask you this before we go into something else. What attracted you originally to amateur radio? Well... <laughs> Uh, my grandfather um, was a, an inventor, <clears throat> and um, he made uh, quite a lot of money before the 1929 crash, was a, a millionaire. And, of course, he lost everything in the, uh, in the crash, but that didn't stop him. And he died in 1935, and um, he smoked, so uh, he got... Um, uh, he he got sick and died from that. And about six or seven months later, um, a friend of mine, Alfie, and I went to um, church one Sunday morning to go to Sunday school. And a fellow came in with a big box of radio parts and asked Alfie if he was interested. And Alfie said, no, uh, ask Wayne. So I said, you bet. And... It will take a lot of convincing to convince me that that wasn't an angel uh, goaded by my grandfather, <laughs> because that got me started. Uh, in uh, mechanic, in uh, Popular Mechanics, they had an article on how to build a cigar box radio, and I had the parts for it. So I built one, and it worked. I was hooked. And um, when I went to high school, I joined the radio club, and they got me to get my ham radio license, of course. And I just had a wonderful time building things down through the years and um, loved it and always into new things. Well, now, that's, how it that's how it started. When you, felt, when you built the, the cigar box radio, what, now what kind, of, what kind of receiver was that? Well, it was a little uh, AM broadcast receiver. Was it, but it worked. Was it tube, crystal radio, or? Uh, oh, this was tubes, sure. 
So you had um, yeah. building tubes in a cigar box radio. Well, you know that's uh, <laughs> you know. But the thing of it is, is that I you know we've lost so much. I think sometimes. I mean, I think we've gained a lot technology wise. But there's something about the magic of that, um, and I think that you kind of capture it telling the story. Well, but what about you know what about ham radio? I mean, uh, you know, ham radio is. Um, you know, is is a, a distance away from building a receiver in a in a cigar box. How did you uh, How did you happen into amateur radio? Well, uh, I was building things, and of course, I got more and more. You know, the next thing was an all band receiver that I built, and that introduced me to the ham bands. And um, so, uh, the more I listened to that, I said, "Hey, I got to do that." And I uh, went and visited a ham a few blocks away from me and got on the air from his station with him and had a wonderful time. <clears throat> Back in those days, on 160 meters, uh, we could have uh, five or six stations all talking to each other at once. And um, they outlawed that later. But <laughs> interestingly enough, a couple of years ago, I visited Art Bell. <clears throat> and um, got in the air from his station, and lo and behold, there was W2LBF, the fellow that I had uh, visited and gotten on the air from before I got my ham license in Brooklyn, New York. <laughs> so we had a wonderful time talking about old times. Now, was that was that on sideband or was that on AM? Oh, that's on sideband on uh, 75 meters, yeah. Okay, well, the reason I ask is there's, there's still a real... Pretty good sized crowd on seventy five that's still doing AM. Yep, oh sure. Well it has higher quality, but it takes up a lot more bandwidth. So um I go with the new things. I was one of the first ones on single sideband. As a matter of fact, in nineteen fifty nine I flew around the world with a sideband uh twenty meter sideband transceiver on the plane. And uh Stopped at, uh, what was it, uh, 32 countries on the way around, talking with hams all the way around and visiting with them as we stopped. And that was all sideband back in 1959, and that was the early days. What was the, I mean, I, I know you, you've obviously, you, you got involved with so many different facets of, uh, of, of radio, but what was it in, in ham radio early on that was the most fascinating thing to you? I know you said building. But there should have been, there might have been, could have been, an area that fascinated you more than others. Well, I built, uh, you know, ham radio transmitters. I built receivers. I built audio amplifiers. I was into hi-fi uh, way back in the, uh, you know, 1940, 1938, <clears throat> and so forth. I was one of the pioneers in that field. So when you oh, say when you I build anything when you <laughs> when you say hi-fi now you're you're not talking about you're talking about pre-stereo days right oh yeah yeah it's, stereo it's, came along uh, in the sixties so when when did you see the first uh, magnetic phonograph pickup oh um, well let's see I had one with me when I joined the navy in nineteen forty two. I had my own <laughs> record player that I'd built, complete with a magnetic head and so forth, and an amplifier. And I took along a big carton of 78 RPM classical records with me and uh, on the submarine. So you were you were on a submarine? 
Yeah, I spent World War II on a submarine in the Pacific. <clears throat> Matter of fact, my boat is uh, on display down in Mobile, Alabama. And you'll see a picture of me 65 years ago is how I looked. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so what was it, you know, what? how did you adapt to submarine life? Did you like that? Oh, I liked it, sure. And, um, yeah, well, I was in charge of the uh, electronic equipment. I kept the radar, the sonar, the radio, and so forth, everything working. And when it was battle stations, I was on the radar, and if we're on the surface or on the sonar, if we were submerged. So I was right in the middle of everything. And I had a lot of fun with that. Uh, matter of fact, uh, I had a, uh, a little remote unit in my bunk so that I could see what was on the uh, radar <laughs> just by looking up while I was in my bunk, <laughs> taking a nap and so forth. I'd look up and see what was doing on the radar. Well, now, how did you uh, how did you enter the military and 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 describe a little bit about your military career? How long did that go on? Well, uh, for four years, um, we had a war, <laughs> World War II, and I was in college at the time. And then, uh, along about 1942, it became obvious that I was going to get drafted because they were drafting just about everybody. So um, I said, you know, heck, I don't want to go through that mill. And I tried to join the Air Force, and they wouldn't have me because I had hay fever and asthma. So um, then a uh, fellow who had worked for my father was now a, a um, let's see, a lieutenant in the Navy. And he got me an appointment to meet with the commander of the um of the uh, laboratory in Anacostia, Virginia, right across from Washington, D.C. So I went down and interviewed with Commander Bourne, and he said, wow, I want you to work for me, but of course, first you have to go to radar school so you'll know what you're doing. And I said, fine. He said, now when you graduate, let me know, <clears throat> and uh, we'll cut your orders to get back here and work in the lab. So um, I went to radar school for uh, nine months, and they took kids that didn't know an ohm from a volt and in nine months had them able to repair anything electronic. It was a spectacular course. And I loved it. I loved every minute of it. Uh, I came out right on top uh, <laughs> for the first time in my life. I always was a C student in the school, but there <laughs> I was A+. plus. So um, when it came time to graduate... I said, gee, you know, I think the uh, people working in the lab probably ought to be married guys that have a family, and um, I I better go to sea. And, uh, you know, we're, if I get won't hurt a family. So uh, it was a question of going on destroyers or submarines because I had to be in charge. I don't take orders well. And, uh, matter of fact, not well at all. And um, the pay was better than the, um, and so forth for submarines, and it was a little more exciting, so I volunteered for submarines. And I flunked the, um, the physical. <laughs> that was funny because I went in to take the physical to uh, get on submarines. And I memorized the eye chart, 
<laughs> D-E-F-T-O-T-E-C one way and backwards is C-E-T-O-P-F-E-D. I still remember it for the 2020 line. But my eyesight was good. That wasn't a problem. However, they said, well, you're overweight and uh Therefore, we have to uh, disqualify you. And I said, well, how much overweight? And they said, well, about eight pounds. And I said, okay, this is Friday. If I come back Monday, eight pounds lighter, uh, do I get in? And they said, sure. So um, over the weekend, I uh, went out and ran over the obstacle course endlessly and took steam baths and so forth and came back 10 pounds lighter on Monday. And uh, they said, wow, but you've got flat feet, so we have to disqualify you. <laughs> so uh, I went back to the school, and they said, did you pass? And I said, sure. <laughs> and the next thing you know, I was on a submarine. <laughs> and it said in my, uh, you know, during a depth charge, I'd get out my uh, jacket there from the uh, yeoman and look at where it said I was disqualified for submarine duty. <laughs> But at any rate, that's how I got on submarines. Well, that's quite an amazing story. <laughs> it really is. I mean, that's well, you know, you must have really wanted to do that. I mean, really had it set or focused in your mind that that's where you were headed and that was what you wanted to get done. Well, I liked it, and I liked being in charge, and the captain let me do what I wanted. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a short break. I didn't like to take orders. (laughs) And it sounds like you still don't like to take orders. Um, We're going to take it, and I'm saying that with a a good nature. You're not going to hang up on me now, are you? Uh, No, no, no. (laughs) If if people ask me to do things, I'll do almost anything. If they tell me to, they can go to hell. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I think that's that's almost human nature. We're going to take a break, and we'll be right back right after this. The Light Pack Systems Induction Lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. Light Pack Induction Lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year. With a failure rate of less than 10%, LightPak offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs as well as indirect costs. LightPak offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings. Also, lasting up to five times longer than standard lighting options. LightPak's quality shines through with their standard 10-year warranty on all products. Call today for your free demonstration. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com. That's lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. If you'd like to travel, if you're a camper, if you'd like to take your ham radio hobby with you when you go, you need the Trans World Antennas TW2010L Backpacker Antenna. It's the same exact antenna as the TW2010 Adventurer, with the exception it's been streamlined for the person who likes to camp and travel light. It's the same rugged antenna structure as the TW2010, with the black powder coating and stealth design. We all know the TW2010 is a great permanent or portable antenna, but the TW2010L Backpacker takes portable and emergency operation to an entirely new level. It's especially suited for the amateur operator who loves 
backpacking, cycling, camping. It makes easy access and quick setup possible for the most extenuating emergencies. TW2010L Backpacker Antenna is available now for a limited time for only $399.95. That's right, $399.95. Pricing includes backpacker, quadra stand, carrying bag, and free shipping in the continental United States through FedEx Ground. That's transworldantennas.com. And now for a limited time, only $399.95. That's transworldantennas.com. Are you needing a place to put up a website? Have you looked around? You want to do something that's easy, that's simple, and very, very inexpensive, but yet looks professional? Are you having troubles with your computer? Do you need some tech support help? Are you tired of being connected to India every time you pick up the telephone to get some help on a machine or on a website? The people to call is tux-support.com. That's tux-support.com. T-U-X, like tuxedo, dash support, the word support, dot com. These are the people to call. They can get you going. It won't cost you an arm and a leg. You can afford to work with these folks. They're professionals. They answer in plain English, and they can help you do things from a very, very basic, simple standpoint. If you have something that you want to do that's a complex project, well, they can handle that as well. But if you're like I am, when you're trying to put something up on the web or you need help with the computer, you really want somebody that speaks English. <laughs> and you want it to be simple, and you don't want to have to pay an arm and a leg for it and you want to deal with some good folks, go to their website, tux-support.com. That's T-U-X-S-U-P-P-O-R-T.com. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com that's qsoradioshow.com and send us an email tell us a little bit about yourself where you're listening how the signal's coming in or if you're listening by podcast but be sure and put on that email i want to win because we're going to have some really really neat things to give away we'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com or tedrandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and we'll look for your email. Well, I guess I'm not going to tell you to do anything. (laughs) I may ask you a couple questions here. That'll be okay, won't it? Oh, Uh, sure. My father never got used to that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what what about... Even after a bunch of spankings. What do you think, you know, formed your interest, I mean, as a kid? You know, I mean, uh, I know you, you said your dad, but your, your introduction to radio came with, with uh, some parts and whatnot. But, you know, growing up as a child, what do you remember? What are the, the things you remember that uh, you think maybe caused your focus to go in a particular direction? Or you know, how, how did that work? Well, my grandfather, as I said, was a, an inventor. And he's the one who invented the thermostat for gas ovens and um, oh, uh, things like that. So, um, and he taught me, uh, you know, how to do glass blowing and 
that sort of stuff. So I was kind of inclined in that direction. And when the radio came along, it got me. And I'm I'm still convinced that Ram uh, did that after he died. <laughs> okay, you were saying you were very fortunate. I was very fortunate as a child. My mother <clears throat> knew how to feed me, and this was 80 years ago. Um, she fed me uh, no cold cereal, no jam, no jelly, no sugar. Um, I had hot cereal or eggs, usually soft-boiled, which meant that the yolk was not cooked and uh, about half of the white wasn't cooked. We're getting close to raw there. And lots of uh, fruits and vegetables and so forth. And she read to me during meals, got me interested. And as soon as I learned to read, I started reading books one after the other. And uh, read all of the Oz books and so forth and just loved reading. And I still do. (laughs) So um, one of the things I try to get people to do is that, hey, look, there are so many fascinating books out there. Uh, Don't spend all your time just entertaining entertaining yourself with television and ball games and things like that. Um, Build your, you know, you're here for a lifetime. Make the most of it and learn as much as you can because uh, you'll need that later. So, um, well, you went. I read, I read a lot of books. Well, you you talk about reading because you developed a you were a pioneer actually in in the computer industry because you began a publication and that was Byte Magazine. <clears throat> well, let's go back to what happened and how that started. Uh, in amateur radio, we had a, a few uh, clubs around the country that were extending the range of their mobile units and their handy talkies with what we called repeaters, which were automatic relay stations on top of mountains and tall buildings. And this looked like a lot of fun, so I started publishing articles on it. And I put one up in the local mountain here, Pacman Adnock, and it made it so that any mobile ham anywhere in New England could talk to any other and I could talk uh, to any of them with my little handy talkie uh, over a range of about 50 to 100 miles. So um, I said, wow, this is great. And I published hundreds of articles on it in my 73 magazine. I published a special journal, a repeater journal. And I uh, went down and got the FCC to change their rules and regulations uh, to favor repeaters and so forth. And I kept writing in my editorials, and I said, hey, look, I'm able to ski the mountains of New Hampshire, Vermont, and uh, Colorado, and make telephone calls anywhere in the world through the local ham radio repeater. And I said, everybody in the world's going to want to be able to do this. Well, they took my editorials to the top people at Motorola, and that's how we got cell phones. That's where it started. So... um, In 1975, January, a little outfit down in Albuquerque, New Mexico, put out a kit for computer hobbyists. And I got one and put it together, and I said, I think I can do it again. I see the future. And I started, within a few weeks, I started a magazine called Byte, B-Y-T-E, which became eventually the largest magazine in the country, running uh, seven, 800 pages a month. And uh, then I started Microcomputing Magazine for the more technically minded, 80 Micro for people with the Radio Shack computer, Insider for people with the um, Apple computer, Run for people with the Commodore computer, 
cocoa for people with a color computer, and so forth. I started one of the first software companies called Instant Software, and we developed over 250 programs and uh, of all kinds, business and, and uh, educational and fun games and so forth. So... Um, I was the largest, the first pre, uh, publisher and the largest publisher in the computer field. And uh, then when I'd done that, I finally sold everything to Computer World and went on to um, work with Compact Discs, which had just been developed. And um, the hi-fi magazines and the, uh, I should say, the audio magazines and the music magazines all said, oh, we don't need another medium. We're always going to have LPs. We like LP sound. And I said, baloney, and started a magazine called CD Review, Compact Disc Review. <laughs> and I had the readers review every CD they bought for sound quality and performance. And the ones that we rated 1010 sold like crazy. Our readers were spending $30 million a month for them. It became the largest music magazine in the country within a year and um, so forth. And I had a lot of fun with that. Built my own recording studio out in the barn, state-of-the-art. <laughs> Turned out uh, a bunch of CDs and uh, pushed independent music <clears throat> and uh, built the um, market for independent music from 4% of the market up to 16% of the market. That's over a billion dollars a year in sales. So I had a lot of fun doing those things. It's something that amazed me, and I'll, I'll be the one to ask you, because it seems like uh, in, in living in the Nashville area, you'd, you could ask this question to some engineer somewhere that would know, but it doesn't seem like, I, I can't get an answer. I, I was so disappointed when I would purchase certain CDs that the the vinyl on a good turntable actually sounded better than the compact disc, and I thought, how is that possible? Because you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, it just it doesn't seem right, you know. But I could take the analog recording off of the good turntable, I could record it into a computer and burn it to CD, mm-hmm. and I had very very close, almost imperceivable difference between the CD I had recorded and uh, and the original vinyl. Well, my magazine forced the major studios, uh, the major record companies, to rebuild their studios <clears throat> because they were designed for LP quality. In other words, they didn't have any real highs or real lows. And... Uh, <laughs> Little things like air conditioners didn't make any difference for LPs, but with CDs, they did. So um, anyway, we did, by having the uh, CDs reviewed by the readers, it made it so that the bum ones fell away. And the early CDs were pretty crummy, most of them. They, uh, they didn't do a good job of that. But we built up the quality very quickly because the uh, ones that got a 10-10 rating sold like crazy. So um, anyway, that's the way that worked. Well, you know, you talked a little bit about uh, about about health, and you talked about. Uh, no, I talk a lot about health. Well, no, I said you talked a little bit about health <laughs> just a few minutes ago. You were talking about your mom knowing how to feed you, and uh, right, and of course, unfortunately, today, I don't guess there's very many young folks that are being fed uh, anywhere near correctly, and we don't. We've yet to see the outcome of all of that. We already know what the outcome of the baby boomers 
if we want to call I don't even know who they are. I mean, they, I've heard you know re- references to two or three different generations of being baby boomers. But nonetheless, we, we are a nation of, um, of uh, out of shape, diseased, fat people who are dying on drugs. Mm-hmm. And um, Wayne, you you know you have a handle on this. I mean, you really do have a handle on it. There's a there's a half a dozen people in the country that seems to have an idea. At least a half a dozen that I know of. I'm sure there's more, but you know my my scope of understanding and 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 what I know is limited. But I know for a fact that you're on the right track and you know what's going on. So Mike, I'm gonna I'm just gonna ask this, and I want you to to take it from there and that is okay your mom fed you correctly mm-hmm. and then you said you went through a period of time where you um you had gotten overweight you were yep. obviously in military what happened since then and what have you learned well what i've learned is that and this is the biggest secret in the world the biggest cover-up i should say and that is that you can cure any illness with no drugs and I've got some pretty good doctors <clears throat> behind me on that. Now, I'll say that again. You can cure any illness with no drugs. And I'm talking about cancer, a total cure with no drugs, without fail, 100% of the time. I'm talking about curing AIDS, diabetes, anything. It doesn't, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's total cure and it's easy but you do have to change your lifestyle it is what we are doing to ourselves that is causing all of this misery and um, i've done the homework on that <clears throat> and you and um, you can go to a website like dr lorraine days drday.com and when i put everything together i said look we have an immune system built into our bodies. And this is the repair and maintenance department. And it can fix anything if you let it. But we are so busy putting toxic substances into and on our bodies, and the immune system is so busy fighting them, sending out the the white cells and so forth to fight them, that other things get away. For instance, with cancer. The cells in our body, millions of them, are duplicating themselves every day. Well, it's the immune system's job to go in there and check and make sure that the replication is right. Because uh, if there's an error, you can have a cancer cell. And it's the immune system's job to find that and trash it. Well, if you keep it so busy with toxins that you're putting into your body <clears throat> that it can't do its job, you're going to get cancer. And the way it is right now, if people continue with their diet, 50%, one half of the people are going to get cancer. And they're going to go to the doctor, and they're going to go to chemotherapy and so forth, and they're going to die. Now, um, if you go to DRDAY, you find Dr. Lorraine Day, a leading trauma surgeon in San Francisco, wonderful bona fides. Just take a look at the letters she sent to AARP when they called her a snake oil salesman. (laughs) But then AARP is kept alive by advertising by pharmaceutical industry, as are most magazines. 
I was just counting the pages of ads in the latest issue of Newsweek, and it's 13 and two-thirds pages of pharmaceutical ads. You can bet that you're never going to hear a word in there about how easy it is to cure any illness. So how do you cure them? You stop the toxins. And what are the toxins? Well, we know a few of them. We know that alcohol is toxic, nicotine, caffeine, Heck, with caffeine, one drop of pure caffeine injected into your body will kill you. And um, that morning cup of coffee sends your immune system for a loop for a while and so forth. And that gives you a fast pickup and then lets you down and makes you tired and fatigued and cranky uh, a little bit later. Then we have sugar. Sugar is uh, a, a terribly addictive substance, pure sugar, uh, cane sugar. So we have things like white flour products, which have no good to them, are toxic. But the, the sleeper, the one that is the most surprising and the one that is causes the most difficulty, is cooked food. As soon as you cook food, it becomes toxic. It kills the enzymes, it kills the vitamins, it kills the phytonutrients in the food, and the immune system tackles it as toxic with white cells, and down goes your immune system. So we're talking about a raw food diet. And of course, milk is pasteurized, which means it's dead. And then we compound that by homogenizing it, which breaks down the fat particles so small that they really do a job on your arteries and uh, rip them up. So um, a wonderful book by uh, Robert Cohen called Milk the Deadly Poison. Forty years ago, Dr. Henry Beeler went into hospitals where children were there with incurable leukemia, there to die, and he cured every one of them. What he did was take them off all milk products and fed them minced raw liver. And uh, I know everybody says, ugh, I could never eat that. (laughs) Well, I get phone calls regularly from people saying, I read your book, The Secret Guide to Health, and you said that liver was good. And um, so if, if you get a good liver, that is from a cow that has been raised on grass or a buffalo, uh, raised on grass with no growth hormones and no antibiotics and so forth. And what you do is you take the liver and put it into a, either a Cuisinart or one of these ultimate choppers that they're selling on television. That's what I use. It minces it in about one second, salt and pepper, and it's delicious. And I have people calling me saying, you know, Wayne, I never thought I could eat that, but you said it was good. So I tried it. Wayne, I love it. <laughs> Okay, raw liver. But now yep. you can't go into the supermarket and with per- salt and pepper. Uh, with my super- supermarkets, you can. Uh, the, Shaw, the Shaw supermarkets up here have a a wild harvest section with buffalo meat. They have buffalo meat there. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know. I you know, and of course, different people uh, living in different parts of the country are going to have a, a, a different choices, and especially throughout Europe, you're going to have different places where people are going to be able to purchase cer- certain things and other folks that can't. So I would say if you don't have some place uh, like what you're talking about, uh, I, let me ask you this. Would you advise, you know, 
eating raw meat from the average grocery store? Absolutely not. I wanted to ask that question because I, right. I, I didn't no, want you've to. You've got to find a local farm. I've got several around here that have uh, good beef, uh, wholesome beef, and two buffalo farms locally. Well, how important is the raw meat? If a person wanted to go on a raw food diet, and let's say that they went on a raw vegetable diet, which a lot of folks I know would probably say they could tolerate that until they worked up enough nerve to try the raw meat. But if <laughs> if you how how vital or how needed is the raw meat? I mean, could you? I mean, I, well, I, we we are uh, you know we're omnivores, and we our ancestors were hunter gatherers. In the winter, they ate meat because they couldn't gather anything. So um, our bodies are designed for that. Yes, you can get along pretty good on uh, just vegetables and fruits if you eat them raw. But um, we do need the B12 and things that you get just from meat. Now, does, now let me ask you, and I'm curious about this. Does Lorraine Day... She's a vegetarian. Uh, okay, and I was going to say she does not advocate the raw meat. Now, does does she is she like opposed to it though? Does she say no? I don't. We don't do that. Or I don't think she is because she read my book and called up and said, "Wayne, your book is right on the money." Okay, well, I didn't. I didn't know because I mean, it's, it's like I, I had a no. I had a conversation with Jack Lalane, and Jack Lalane said, "I eat nothing but raw vegetables, and I eat me, uh, fish." He says about twice mm-hmm. a week. And so I asked him, I started asking him questions, and he was basically saying, well, no, it's perfectly okay to eat chicken. It's okay to eat beef. He said, it's just something that I don't do. Yeah. You know, and uh, and, that's what, and that was he, what he was saying. But, you know, sure. Um, well, he never tasted it. What, <laughs> well, let me, ask, let me ask you a question. Is it the heat? Is it all cooked foods? I mean, for example, if you make a big pot of vegetable soup, is it just, I mean, are you saying that? It's dead. It's useless. It's dead. So what about the chicken soup when I've had a cold? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. When I when I have a cold and I'm all plugged up, I, I, I want my chicken soup. So Well, you know, if you go on a raw food diet, you'll never get a cold or a flu again the rest of your life. Now, see, there you have it right there. We're going to take a break. Or anything else. Your immune system can handle anything. We'll take a quick break. We'll be right back right after this. You've been listening to an interview with Wayne Green. It was actually a four-part interview that went on for quite some time. We'll have Wayne back on. We'll have more from Wayne. I know everybody loves to hear this man talk. So we'll have Wayne back on just as soon as we can and possibly play a few of the other segments from the the broadcast from KAIJ uh, some years back. Coming up. Bob Grove of Monitoring Times right here on QSO. And one more thing, lest I forget. You can go up on the web and find Wayne Green and and all of his books and writings and and all these different things that that he talks about at waynegreen.com. That's waynegreen.com. Be sure and go up and shoot him an email and tell him you heard him on QSO. I know he'll get a big bang out of that. Once again, coming up, Bob Grove, Monitoring Times. Next up on QSO. If you're the decision maker for any form of outdoor lighting, you're going to want to listen to this. The Light Pack Systems Induction Lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. This lamp system is therefore classified in a new family of sources. The Light Pack Induction Lamp Systems. 
LightPak Induction Lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications. Not only because of its high luminescence and efficiency, but especially because of its unprecedented lifetime. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year. With a failure rate of less than 10%. With this unmatched durability, LightPak offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs as well as indirect costs. Induction lighting is relatively new in the United States, but it's proven technology developed in Europe over 20 years ago. Therefore, claims of durability is based on real-world empirical data as opposed to estimated design life provided by competitive lighting technologies such as LED. LightPak Systems was founded on the principles of green solutions for modern lighting through strong partnerships with the U.S. military, the University of Central Florida, and several national energy service companies. LightPak offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings. Also, lasting up to five times longer than standard lighting options. LightPak's quality shines through with their standard 10-year warranty on all products. Call today for your free demonstration. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com. That's lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. In this day and time, what we don't have much of is time. And if you enjoy operating and you just don't get a chance to, you need to take a look at the Trans World Antennas TW2010, and all the models that operate the different bands. Go to YouTube and put in Transworld Antennas and see how simple this thing is to set up. I mean, it is easy. It goes together fast. And, of course, that gives you more time to operate. You're not fussing around with an antenna. In an emergency situation, it is absolutely necessary. You need to have one of these if not for yourself, for your club, or whoever it is that may get called out on a scene where you've got to operate and you've got to be able to set up quickly and efficiently. Go to their website, and that's transworldantennas.com. Transworldantennas.com. There's a link up there to YouTube, and you can see how quickly this antenna sets up, how easy it is to operate. Transworldantennas.com. Well, our guest today is Bob Grove. And he's the president of uh, Grove Enterprises, the publisher of Monitoring Times magazine. And I want to say good day to you. And how are you doing today, sir? Well, a good day to you, sir, Ted. And uh, I'm doing quite well. Um, it's a bit rainy here, however, but we can use the weather. <laughs> you know, you know, everybody, I'm sure, is familiar you know, with the magazine. At one point in time, they picked up Monitoring Times. And, and I, of course, I, right. I purchase the magazine on a regular basis. Uh, well, I read it on a regular basis myself. <laughs> well, you know, I like all the gossip, you know, <laughs> knowing what's going on, you know. Um, but your, your focus, you, care, you, you cover such a wide uh, area of, of interest because it's not just shortwave radio. It's not just scanners or ham radio. I mean, it's, you've got everything under the sun in there. My question is, is, how do you keep up with all of that? Well, of course, uh, it, it requires quite a team, actually, Ted. We have um, a stable of approximately 40 writers, uh, many of them on a frequent basis and some on occasional feature basis. And uh, 
We've been doing this now, of course, for over a quarter century. We were the first magazine to come out that was exclusively for receiving. There have been ham radio magazines and other hobby mags out there, of course, for many decades since the advent of radio at the turn of the 20th century. But uh, we were the first one to uh, come out and say, let's let's do one strictly for the listener. And the, the main reason we did that is at that time there were two distinct areas of radio as a hobby. There was the radio ham, and of course he was licensed. He was primarily interested only in the amateur radio frequencies. And um, uh, I'm a a ham. I've been one for over half a century, uh, licensed uh, consecutively. But um, I also do a tremendous amount of listening to the spectrum. And I knew there were a lot of people out there like that. So what we did is decided, let's, let's give this an experiment and uh, it was actually a an offshoot from a little newsletter that I used to accompany products that we used to sell, mail order. Uh, the first one was an antenna, our scanner beam, and we still, we're in the third generation <clears throat> of selling that one now through Grove Enterprises. But um, Monitoring Times was born from our customers saying, Bob, this information is terrific. How about putting it out on a regular basis? And that's the, the premier issue uh, some uh, two and a half decades ago. Well, when you first started the, uh, the magazine, did you have any idea it would evolve into what it is today? <laughs> right. No, we sure didn't. Um, you're, the, this, of course, reflects back on the first question of where the heck do we get all this information. And uh, we found that there was quite a, a variety, even among the listeners. Uh, they were pretty well uh, divided into two distinct categories, and that was the shortwave listener and the scanner monitor. Uh, the scanner, mo- scanner monitor, obviously, in the VHF, UHF spectrum, primarily interested in listening to public safety first. Uh, then, then aircraft and marine. A lot of people liked it for sporting events. And then, of course, uh, there were those that liked to monitor the ham radio frequencies, whether or not they were licensed hams. We thought it sure would be nice if we could integrate these fields all into the one publication. What we found out, which was really interesting, was that as a result of our efforts, there was a gradual acceptance of the SWL and the SCANI, as, as we lovingly refer to the VHF, UHF, and for scanner monitors, uh, into the, the ranks of real radio so that the hams were beginning to be interested in those areas as well. We had a lot of letters and correspondence from the hams who wanted to know more about what was in between the amateur radio allotments throughout the spectrum. And uh, this, of course, gave us, at that point, uh, full both barrels. Let's, let's see what we can provide them with. And so we opened up into everything from public safety and maritime and aircraft monitoring all the way up uh, into satellites. And uh, we had information in each thrill-packed edition of uh, our initial efforts uh, on, on this, this entire gamut of the radio spectrum. We, we decided not to, uh, to limit ourselves. And so we went all the way from basically the, the old... Uh, DC to daylight reference in terms of radio frequency and wavelength. We had uh, people who like to listen to what they call natural radio, which are the radio sounds down um, in the electromagnetic emissions and emanations from from Earth and space uh, down in the uh, lower few kilohertz range, and of course all the way up into the uh, gigahertz range uh, for satellite downlinks. 
let me ask you, through the years, uh, what's been the um, the interest or the development, say, for the magazine is concerned with Citizens Band? Have you all ever done anything with with CB radio at all? The main reason, right, the, the main reason that Monitoring Times has rarely touched CB is that when we began, CB indeed was a phenomenon uh, of tremendous extension uh, throughout, uh, well, actually globally, uh, and mostly illegally. The vast majority of CB operators run illegally without licenses because at that time it was required to have a license. I did just to be able to operate the frequency band that was taken from us as as hams, uh, the 11-meter band. I remember my initial uh, 19A7074 was my call. And uh, it turned out that the FCC was issuing these things, uh, however, unlawfully, because it didn't have the W or K prefix on it. So then I became KOP0205. <laughs> that, was, that was my CB call while I was still doing it. Uh, but we, from the standpoint of the, uh, uh, the publication itself, there were so many CB magazines, including the one called CB, uh, my my old colleague Tom Nitell, uh, Tommy of course was the editor of that, and did a very very good job. So we didn't see that there was much of a point in getting into that aspect of it when it was already being sufficiently covered, and was in fact um, unlawful uh, in in the most in most cases of the uh, unlicensed operators and those who were DXing high power and this type of thing. Um, we have covered it from time to time as an article topic in occasional features, and uh, we probably will do that. Where it's it's been long since we even touched the topic because I don't think anybody has really thought of it that much in the staff of Monitoring Times. Um, but in any case, CB is here to stay. Uh, it, it is uh, going to be picking up again in another two or three years, primarily once again as free band operation. Um, because of the change in the sunspot cycle. It's, this uh, new cycle is coming in, and uh, within the next year or two, I think we'll see some advancement in the long-distance propagation up there in the 27 megahertz band. And I probably at that point will include occasional articles in Monitoring Times about that. Well, you know, years ago, with, with, with Citizens Band, there used to be like local communities of people, you know, you'd you'd go into a town, you'd have you know four or five channels, uh, and sometimes they were like in different parts of town. They were all like a little community of people. They all knew each other. They all met for coffee. They chewed the breeze, and you know, it was, it was kind of a cool thing back then. You know, and it was mm-hmm. I, yes, it, it was a lot That's of pe- true. And of course, there was the uh, uh, those uh, react groups too that were for sort of an active civil defense type of thing in which they would uh, get together and, and share their communications capabilities and skills uh, to assist in in the public need when emergencies should arise. And I, you know, I, I guess the thing about this is I remember that I have fond memories of that because I was just a kid. Matter of fact, uh, I believe right. my my CB call was KRM four nine two six. I think it was. Okay. I wasn't. I <laughs> we I was, never forget those. Yeah, I was after the nineteen uh, W nineteen A. Uh, 
era of, of call signs. Right. But I'm, I'm wondering now, they've introduced this family radio or family band, and I'm not, you know what, it, I'm not even familiar with it, sad enough to say. Oh, yes, okay, FRS, uh, Family Radio Service. That right. was that was pioneered as a, as a of course, uh, a commercial effort by Radio Shack, and uh, they did very well with it and still do. Um, there, there's been an interesting... A, a phase change there, which most people are unaware of, that was uh, that was became highly resisted, and it's interesting the way this happened. FRS or the Family Radio Service was intended as a short-range walkie-talkie, point-to-point, half-mile sort of service, or whatever you get out of uh, half a watt or less, um, in the 462 and 467 megahertz range. And it shares uh, some of the spectrum with the uh, General Mobile Radio Service, the GMRS, which is a licensed service. Um, in any case, when Radio Shack came out with these 14-channel uh, two-way radios, they, they had instant success. The first ones were quite expensive. They were over $100 a walkie-talkie. This, this dropped down to now where you can, there's often sales where you can buy a pair of them for nine ninety-five. dollars uh, Basically, the, some are more expensive than others merely because they claim to have a longer range. Some will say 7-mile range, 10-mile range. Well, that's true if you might be out in space. <laughs> <laughs> and have absolutely no obstructions between the the two radios or mountaintop to mountaintop. But um, most of them have a range of roughly a half a mile or so, and um, the length of the walkie-talkie antenna on it has a lot to do with that because the larger antenna is going to have better capture of the incoming signal. So you'll often see the smaller, the, the, the cheaper radios with shorter antennas than the more expensive ones. But the problem with FRS transceivers, however, is that you're not allowed to have interchangeable antennas. Um, some of the first ones that came out were put out with the BNC connectors. And so a guy could put on a, <clears throat> a much better antenna on his rooftop and uh, get a fair number of miles out of these things. But uh, that immediately um, was truncated by an effort from the FCC, and fines, I'm sure, were imposed on these companies. So now you can buy the little things, and uh, they uh, they will operate quite well over a number of miles. They're fun for sporting events and large events where lots of people are, and you want to make sure that the family stays together and you give one of the kids one. Um, and generally, as you go to one of those events and you tune through, you're going to find a lot of folks on there on the different channels, and that's fun. Now, I, I mentioned when we started uh, this that there was an interesting transition that occurred. Out came a proposal by the FCC for what was called MERS, the um, Multi-Use Radio Service. And um, that allowed you to operate in the 150 megahertz range, up to several watts of power, and with interchangeable antennas, including base antennas, uh, and unlicensed. And there were five, uh, I believe it's five channels that are allocated to that service. Well, that was great. I have a pair of transceivers I'm looking at right here in my own radio room, and um, they, they'll operate for miles uh, because it's a lower frequency and higher power. Uh, it will go over uh, terrain and, and through trees, and it's a, it's a fine service. However, it never took hold because it was a direct competition for the family radio service devices. So your major manufacturers of FRS were understandably reluctant 
to try to sell MURS devices. So they kind of just withered on the shelf. And uh, occasionally you can pick them up and use them and uh, for very low prices uh, on eBay and this type of thing, and sometimes even in the radio dealer shelves. So they're a good investment because they have considerably a better talk power than the FRS transceivers. Now, there, was there ever a desktop-type transceiver made for this MURS service? Or Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were. A mobile and, and desktop, as well as the handhelds. It's a it's a very, very good, reliable service and in, in very, very limited use. And, and what kind of range do you think you could get? I see you put a base station up. Can you attach an outside yeah, antenna? Oh, yeah. If you put up a, uh, an outside antenna on the roof and you have a point-to-point, clear, uh, distant, uh, several miles, without any question, several miles. That, that's interesting. Well, I mean, what my, my leading question what I was going to ask is, do you think it's possible or would it be possible? I'll tell you what. Let's take a break first. We're coming up on the break, and I don't want to take a break and then have to or get into something and have to break in the middle of it. We'll be right back with Bob Grove. Monitoring Times Magazine right after this. You can transform any surface into a self-cleaning, antibacterial, antifungal, mold-free surface. Let it purify your surrounding air and protect your building interior and exterior from environmental contamination. Any germs, oils, fumes, smells, or even little algae spores which land on a surface near Tidox will be remediated in minutes. Any exterior building surface we wish to keep clean needs to receive a little light and be coated with Tidox. Tidox coating destroys viruses, bacteria, odor, harmful gases, allergens, air and water pollutants, and protects treated surfaces against the growth of algae, fungus, and mold. For more information on how you can use Tidox in your home or your place of business, contact Lightpack Systems. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. Since the beginning of time and across the history of radio broadcasting, there's only one radio station that has ever earned a full-length documentary dedicated totally and completely to its rise to a pinnacle never before achieved by any radio station and its fall. This is a story of what happened when the most legendary programming genius of all time takes the reins of an obscure Canadian radio station in the small city of Windsor, Canada, and creates a radio legend that rocked the Motor City, the USA, and half a continent. That does for Big Tom Rivers, 1971, and Hank O'Neill starts a brand new year next at CKLW. For the last time this year, I will say to you, rock on, Bubba! Gentlemen, the beat goes on. CKLW, the Motor City. 2020 News Guys, there were disc jockeys without music. And everybody knew that something was going to happen. You knew something was going to happen. Motor City Mayor Roman Gribbs has a mad on for an unidentified rapist. A butcher, knife-wielding pervert cornered a secretary in the elevator at Detroit City County Building and rode her to the vacant seventh floor and proceeded to sexually assault her. Guards are now being considered for future surveillance of the crime-stained seventh floor. Lee Marshall, 2020 News. Now, Markham Street Productions. 
takes you there as you relive the rise and fall of the big HCKLW, the Motor City. You can now own your own copy of this new DVD documentary, Radio Revolution, the rise and fall of the Big 8 from Markham Street Productions. The special edition DVD of this award-winning feature-length documentary includes extra scenes, outtakes, photos, and special features. Radio Revolution, The Rise and Fall of the Big 8 is now available for only $29.95 plus shipping. Go to RadioRevolutionDVD.com. That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. Order now while supply lasts. RadioRevolutionDVD.com. That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. And the hits just keep on coming. CKLW, the Motor City. Week after week, you hear us talk about Transworld antennas, and you hear us talk about the TW2010, the 4040, the Backpacker, and all these different antennas. Of course, the TW2010 Adventurer came first. Folks were amazed at its performance. Then they introduced the Backpacker, and now the 4040. Go to Eham and read the reviews on the TW2010. Just go to Eham and read those reviews. Now, you can do that by going to transworldantennas.com. Just go to transworldantennas.com. Transworld Antennas, one word. Go to transworldantennas.com. There's a link on that page that'll take you right straight to the Eham reviews, or you can just go to Eham yourself. And if you're a ham, you know how to get to Eham on the internet. Just Google it. You'll get there. <laughs> and read the reviews. See what other amateur radio operators are saying about this antenna. Thank you. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com. And send us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're listening, how the signal's coming in, or if you're listening by podcast. But be sure and put on that email, I want to win, because we're going to have some really, really neat things to give away. We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com or tedrandall.com. R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and we'll look for your email. We're back. Our guest is Bob Grove, the publisher of Monitoring Times. I guess the, uh, the question I was going to ask is, considering the family radio service and also looking at this um, MURS that you're talking about, I was wondering, do you think it's possible that in a service like that that you would, you would form communities much like what you used to have with Citizens Band? Do you think that's kind of a, a no-go situation for that? There have been attempts by groups to do that. As a matter of fact, they have tried to make uh, a certain ch- channels of the 14 available to FRS uh, nationwide for specific calling use and that type of thing. But, but it's failed. Uh, nothing is really propagated. I think the main reason for that is there is no real nucleus or hub of family radio service outside of the family. Uh, it's intent 
of course, is for its uh, um, broad commercial appeal. Uh, it's almost like, you know, there are no real, real wide clubs for collecting uh, CDs, but groups get together if they want to share DVDs, but you don't really see nationwide sharing or clubs for this. It's, um, it's just too crassly commercial, to be perfectly honest about it. You don't have um, a nuclear interest feel like you would with ham radio or the SWL. And, of course, we see pretty much the same thing for scanners. There are some scanner clubs that do form um, in, in cities, but you don't see the, 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 the national aspect of this where you do see that in, in short wave. And a lot of it, of course, has to do with the short, the short range. We're talking about VHF, UHF in the, both the MERS service as well as FRS. Um, and so we're talking about very, very limited communications range. So there's nothing that's really an attractant to share over wide distances. Well, you think with the upcoming sunspot cycle, you'll see a resurgence of the citizens' band communities. I guess the thing that intrigued me about it was, and of course I'm a licensed ham, been a radio engineer for years, but what was intriguing about citizens' band was it was like, like almost a perfect precursor uh, to ham radio. In that, uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, uh, as a matter of fact, enormous numbers of. Uh, uh, CBers have become uh, licensed hams. Uh, we, we, every every organization, every ham club has them. Well, I guess, and the other thing is, is that um, it also provided a community outlet for people who wanted to just yak on the radio and not really yes. care anything, and not give one iota about the technical aspect of any of it. They just loved, you know, having a radio and talking to um, to other people, and, and you know, and. Especially, I've often wondered about senior citizens. This would be a perfect outlet where people can get together who are somewhat limited in their in their traveling uh, range and, mm-hmm. and whatnot. But then I, I've also been told since the advent of Channel 19 and Citizens Band has changed, and I hear from a lot of people, boy, if you you know, Citizens Band is nothing but a bunch of trash now. It's all noise. It's garbage. If you get up there, you're gonna get you're just gonna get mad and disappointed. And of course, I haven't. But I and I wondered about that, and that's why I was thinking. Uh, about this Mer- the MERS service, I mean, uh, but now are you, are you allowed to run any, I mean, what, what is the power limitations and antenna limitations? Because believe it or not, this is new to me. This is the first I've heard of this thing. Oh, okay. Well, it, it might be the last. Uh, <laughs> it be. is out there. The uh, the frequencies are all in the one, 152 or 151 to, uh, I think it goes up to about 154 megahertz. Uh, and as they say, there are either five, I'm pretty sure it's just five channels. Um, and the power limitation, several watts of either five or three or five watts. I, b- I believe it's five watts. Um, and you're allowed to use a variety of types of modulation. You can use it for almost any purpose uh, that you want of a communications value. And uh, with any variety of antennas in any location in, in uh, mobile or fixed environment, so um, it's a very, very flexible service, uh, but you're not likely to find many people on it because very, very few people are buying walkie-talkies for the MERS service. Um, many hams are unaware, probably, who have VHF walkie-talkies that almost every one of them on the market, because of their being manufactured overseas, can have uh, 
the a mod done to extend the both receive and transmit frequency coverage. So um, a lot of folks uh, take those and, and uh, open them up into these other services. I, I have a, a two-way radio, 60 water here that was put out by ICOM a number of years ago, but if I want to, I can talk to any of the hams on two meters. I can talk to, if I want, the, the sheriff and the fire department and, and the public service bands and uh, um, and also the MERS service. And I keep these in reserve just, just for an emergency. Uh, I haven't had to talk with the fire department or the sheriff <laughs> recently, so so it's still reserved, and it's it's legal if you can't. Uh, it's a U.S. Uh, regulation that um, in the case of a safety of life situation where other communications modes are unavailable or inaccessible, uh, that you can use virtually any frequency to uh, transmit in order to communicate the uh, details of the emergency. So it's really legal from that standpoint to, to have such a radio. Um, but in any case, using it is is the subject of the controversy there. But but that's a legal thing to do in an emergency. That's incredible. And uh, of course, I don't want to get stuck here in, in the in the citizens ban mode. <laughs> but this is all something that a lot of people. I think it probably crosses the mind of a lot of a lot of folks, and and especially with uh, with hams. I know the uh, little HT made by uh, who makes the THF six. Uh, oh. I, um... I've Is got that a Kenwood. I believe so. I've got one. My son's got one. I don't know. It seems like it. Yeah. It it it'll transmit on uh, two twenty on four forty. It'll go two meters, and then I guess if they mod the thing, it'll transmit anywhere from DC to visible light. I guess I don't know. I mean, I don't yeah, know. That's just about yeah. That particular model uh, does have an unusually wide capability for modification and uh, continuous frequency coverage. Well, I know. I know my son will monitor. The uh, family radio frequencies on that thing, he can hear hear those on there, and I and I, of course I don't know. He he probably is aware of uh, this MERS service, which you know I'm not. <laughs> I'm out of the loop. You know, <laughs> could well be. But but uh, a lot of those transceivers, including um, matter of fact, I purchased a, a radio that came, believe it or not, brand new from the factory, uh, and it had it had been probably by error opened up. And uh, it would transmit anywhere. I mean, it, and that was kind of a nuisance for me because I don't see real well. And I, <laughs> is this the uh, right. short mountain repeater? No, this is the local police department. Uh, Ham, will you get off of here, please? You know, so, uh, I did that uh, just two weeks ago accidentally with my sixty watt mobile rig. Accidentally put it on the wrong channel and and thought I was talking to my wife on our experimental class uh, frequency. And uh, turned out I was I was keying up the uh, local sheriff's dispatcher. Oh goodness! You'll see. That's what I mean. It's so it's so easy, you know. Especially when you and you know a lot of the displays are hard to see. I mean, if you got them mounted in a car. And these automobiles today, I think ham radio operators ought to lobby Congress to pass a law that it's illegal to, to manufacture an automobile where a radio can't be mounted under the dash. What do you think about that? <laughs> oh, that's right. That's something, isn't it? We used to always talk about under dash mount, and that's now uh, pretty much obsolete. Yeah, it's kind. Of, it's weird. I mean, you look inside there, and it's like as much as I can imagine. I look in the interior of some of these cars, and I can't. I, I can't. My mind won't even go there. It's like there is nowhere to put anything in here. You know. Yeah, I and, know it. A lot of them. Fortunately, uh, I've come up with a with a solution to those that do have that uh, uh, center console. You know that. Between the the passenger and the uh, driver's seat in the front, that comes back uh, and divides the two. And um, what I do is I put uh, some heavy duty 
industrial Velcro on that thing, and I just slapped the rig to the side of that, and that, that's working quite well. Well, things have changed radically, you know, in ham radio and as well as shortwave listening, scanners, and you're talking satellites now. What, what, what's the latest rage as far as satellite listening is concerned? What are people doing? For quite a while, there were, there were two aspects of that which were very, very popular. One was to listen to the military satellites in the uh, 240 to 260 milli- uh, megahertz range, and another was to listen to the International Maritime Satellite uh, in Marsat, which uh, carried, uh, oh, gee, just an infinite variety of two-way communications uh, across the seas, uh, that being up in the um, 1,500 megahertz range. However, uh, virtually now 100%, uh, just about 100% of the 200, uh, 200 megahertz, the UHF millsats are scrambled, and the same goes now for the Inmarsat communications. Uh, in fact, we have an article coming up in, in MT uh, in another, I think next month, if I'm not mistaken, the next month's issue, uh, which will be on Inmarsat and monitoring it, and something I did here, I built an Inmarsat terminal about a month ago uh, with a high-gain antenna, low-noise amplifier, uh, and, and fed it into um, my um, AOR, AR5000 Plus receiver, and uh, tuned in a number of the uh, uh, satellite frequencies of Inmarsat. And everything I got was data. Now, how much of it is encrypted data, I don't know, uh, but definitely data. I didn't hear any voice comms in there. One of the interesting aspects, however, is a sidelight of this. It seems that uh, some of the 200 to 400 megahertz uh, military satellites are occasionally commandeered, either in, uh, either deliberately or without the knowledge of unintentionally ground earth stations that happen to come up on the same frequency. Uh, they'll come up and repeat. And you, you'll be able to hear taxi drivers in South America chatting, this type of thing, where they don't realize that what they're doing is keying up one of these uh, military satellites. Well, that would make for some real interesting listening. Uh, oh, you betcha. Yeah, I remember hearing the um, fishing boats down in the Caribbean on Citizens Band years ago. And, boy, those guys get pretty, uh-huh. real creative in their language. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, um, And you're right about... You're right about the CBers on uh, uh, Channel 19 too. Uh, when you're going up and down in Internet, uh, Internet, Interstate 75, uh, just just a few minutes listening to you know that frequency is 27.185 megahertz, and um, uh, the the talk can be quite colorful. Yeah, I the, the thing I'm having a problem with when I and I want to get back on Citizens Band here is these guys with the echo mics. I mean, they, oh gosh, yeah. they must have an implant or something because I can't understand a word they're saying. Can you? I mean, can you make this stuff out? You know, it's like, I mean, and I, I was a big CBer years ago when I was a kid, you know, but, but I, I hear these guys talking and it's like, what, is, what was that? You know, so I've, I've yeah, come to the, what, 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 yeah. what? Well, they've got implants well, evidently in their head somehow that decodes this is the only thing I can figure it. So, that so. seems to be the only answer. And of course, this is, this is uh, obviously a call for attention. It's uh, something I have that you don't. Uh, look at me. You know, it's, it's one of these look at me characteristics, I guess. I don't know why they do. Uh, I understand. I've never actually seen one of the uh, echoes in use, although I hear them all the time. But um, I believe they have 
a, um, an adjustment that you can decrease the amount of echo from everything sounds like you're in a hollow room, of course, all the way up to where you have multiple echoes that are just about ridiculous to try to uh, hear and interpret, 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 interpret. You know, you know I, I think what would be more interesting would be a pitch change microphone. You know, that you could oh, yeah. you could shift your voice up to sound like a, a female if you were a male or vice versa, you know. <laughs> Like the Darth Vader, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now the, I am your father. The information, uh, or the I should say, the imagination at this point has gone way too far. Let's take a break, and we'll be back. And I've I've got a a, a couple of questions about shortwave for you. Uh, we'll well, be I'll back. Be ready. We'll be back with Bob Grove, monitoring Times Magazine right after this. If you're the decision maker for any form of outdoor lighting. You're going to want to listen to this. The Light Pack Systems Induction Lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. This lamp system is therefore classified in a new family of sources. The Light Pack Induction Lamp Systems. Light Pack Induction Lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications. Not only because of its high luminescence and efficiency, but especially because of its unprecedented lifetime. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year with a failure rate of less than 10%. With this unmatched durability, LightPak offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs as well as indirect costs. Induction lighting is relatively new in the United States, but it's proven technology developed in Europe over 20 years ago. Therefore, claims of durability is based on real-world empirical data, as opposed to estimated design life provided by competitive lighting technologies such as LED. LightPak Systems was founded on the principles of green solutions for modern lighting through strong partnerships with the U.S. military, the University of Central Florida, and several national energy service companies. LightPak offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings. Also, lasting up to five times longer than standard lighting options. LightPak's quality shines through with their standard 10-year warranty on all products. Call today for your free demonstration. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com. That's lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. If you like to travel, if you're a camper, if you'd like to take your ham radio hobby with you when you go, you need the Trans World Antenna's TW2010L Backpacker Antenna. It's the same exact antenna as the TW2010 Adventurer, with the exception it's been streamlined for the person who likes to camp and travel light. It's the same rugged antenna structure as the TW2010, with the black powder coating and stealth design. We all know the TW2010 is a great permanent or portable antenna, but the TW2010L Backpacker takes portable and emergency operation to an entirely new level. It's especially suited for the amateur operator who loves backpacking, cycling, camping. It makes easy access and quick setup possible for the most extenuating emergencies. TW2010L Backpacker Antenna is available now for a limited time for only $399.95. That's right, $399.95. Pricing includes backpacker, quadra stand, carrying bag, and free shipping in the continental United States through FedEx Ground. 
That's transworldantennas.com. And now for a limited time, only $399.95. That's transworldantennas.com. Since the beginning of time and across the history of radio broadcasting, there's only one radio station that has ever earned a full-length documentary dedicated totally and completely to its rise to a pinnacle never before achieved by any radio station and its fall. This is a story of what happened when the most legendary programming genius of all time takes the reins of an obscure Canadian radio station in the small city of Windsor, Canada and creates a radio legend that rocked the Motor City, the USA, and half a continent. That does it for Big Tom Rivers, 1971, and Hank O'Neill starts a brand new year next at CKLW. For the last time this year, I will say to you, rock on, mother! Ladies and gentlemen, the beat goes on. CKLW, the Motor City. 2020 news, guys, they were disc jockeys without music. Bum, bum, bum. And everybody knew that something was going to happen. You knew something was going to happen. Motor City Mayor Robin Cribbs has a mad on for an unidentified rapist, a butcher knight-wielding pervert, cornered a secretary in the elevator at Detroit City County Building and rode her to a vacant seventh floor and proceeded to sexually assault her. Guards are now being considered for future surveillance of the crime-stained seventh floor. Lee Marshall, 2020 News. Now, Markham Street Productions takes you there. As you relive the rise and fall of the Big the Motor You can now own your own copy of this new DVD documentary, Radio Revolution, The Rise and Fall of the Big Eight from Markham Street Productions. The special edition DVD of this award-winning feature-length documentary includes extra scenes, outtakes, photos, and special features, Radio Revolution. The Rise and Fall of the Big Eight is now available for only $29.95 plus shipping. Go to RadioRevolutionDVD.com. That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. Order now while supply lasts. RadioRevolutionDVD.com. That's RadioRevolutionDVD.com. And the hits just keep on coming. CKLW. How many of you would like to operate 80 meters, but you can't because of antenna restrictions? Well, that's over. You can operate 80 meters right now. You can operate from your home, your apartment. You can take it on the road with you. It's the brand new Transworld Antennas 8080. Go to their website and check it out. Transworldantennas.com This is a portable antenna. But it can be a permanent antenna. It's stealth. It's not a low-profile antenna. This thing is a performance-driven piece of engineering. You need to see it. It will be at Dayton, and you need to hear one of these on the air. If you want to operate 80 meters and you can't... I love the 80-meter band. I can't imagine not being able to operate on 80. But nonetheless, if you're in that position, don't stay in that position... Go to the website and check it out, transworldantennas.com. Go up there and take a look at their brand new 80 
80 and look for it at Dayton. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com and send us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're listening, how the signal's coming in, or if you're listening by podcast. But be sure and put on that email, I want to win, because we're going to have some really, really neat things to give away. We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com or tedrandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and we'll look for your email. We're back. Our guest, Bob Grove, Monitoring Times Magazine. And uh, here's, a, here's a question of mine, okay? <laughs> Ever since a kid okay. being a shortwave listener. Now, you have to be an expert on this. I remember hearing things. I, I'm an expert on everything, Ted. Just ask me. <laughs> uh, listening, I remember hearing noises that just defied description, sounds that were repetitive, something that would sound like a horse galloping, you know, just a constant clump, 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 you know, on, on, and it would just go on and on and on. It would roll in and out. I, I assumed it must have been some form of data, but when I was a kid, I don't know what kind of data transmission they would have been doing. Oh, I know, I know exactly what you're, you're hearing. It was repetitive, uh, and you're right. There was a... Like that, right? Right. Mm-hmm. And you, you had it. You were listening to it on a cheapo shortwave receiver that did not have a BFO. Am I correct? Um, that's correct, because it was an old Gruno. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> You were hearing facsimile transmissions, the old drum type, where they would uh, have a rotating drum and the paper on it would gradually be uh, with a pen resting on it, uh, like a drum graph, and each, with each rotation it would make a series of lines until finally it sketched out the picture that was being sent. And uh, you were hearing the repetition was each rotation of the drum. Well, you know, there's some real... The most Go ahead. The most prominent of that, excuse me for interrupting, I was just going to say the frequency 8080, 8.080 megahertz for years uh, had that on there, and that was U.S. Navy sending the maritime weather maps. I'll be. See, as I got a little older, you know, and and friends would come over, and I would have the shortwave radio on, and I would tune around, and you'd hear all these different sounds. I mean, some of the stuff was just unearthly. I mean, weird noises and things, and... Uh, you know, I've often thought there's somebody out there that can explain each one of these. There's some, whatever each That's one right. of these things are. But I remember other things like I mean, being parked on a frequency and, and listening, and all of a sudden you'd hear this thing that sounded like um, what did it sound like? Almost like a gosh, I don't know, just a strange sound that would just kind of like sweep by. You know, and even now I'll be listening on a ham frequency and you hear this. <laughs> Oh, okay. You know, and, These and, are called ionosons, you know, and uh, they are transmissions done for propagation studies. You, you need to know what the high and low end of the spectrum is in which you can anticipate proper intercommunication with a given point on Earth. And so you have a receiving station and a transmitting station, and the receiving station is listening and tracking this uh, and can report back what the highest and lowest frequency is. This is to guarantee fail-safe communications on the short wave spectrum. Well, you know, I, I've, uh, I've wondered, and I was going to ask you, uh, because of all the things that I've heard 
things that sound strange to me, I'm sure that are explainable and, and to a lot of other people, but I've heard other hams say, did you hear that just swish by? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Just, just a sweep goes right by. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some sweepers on there, however, that are um, much shorter in range, and it's for deliberate uh, interference. It's uh, uh, where you have, like North Korea, wanting to interfere with South Korea, that, that type of thing. And, of course, this type of, of deliberate jamming comes in a variety of, of types, uh, and the, the sweeper is one where it goes back and forth across the frequency like that. Then they have, of course, the one that sounds like a diesel truck. You know, with this constant crying and the type of sound down there. I, I remember hearing uh, those. This is, I remember hearing those. Go ahead. And, and those sounded just exactly like somebody had placed a microphone next to a diesel engine going down the road about That's 80 right. miles an hour. Yeah. And they were yep. con- well, You'll find a- those in, in the bro- uh, international shortwave broadcast bands as deliberate interference for jamming purposes. You know, I, I'm wondering, with so many governments saying, well, we're going to disband our shortwave operations. Uh, it's for the for as many of those drones that you hear on there. It must then be almost uh, confirming the fact that shortwave is a threat <laughs> to somebody out there. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> uh, I'm sure that is. That's a tacit admission of the fact that uh, somebody's getting through and and somebody else is listening, and that that is indeed a threat. So uh, that's why they do it. Who, uh, who are the worst? I often get. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say, who who are the worst jammers on on, on shortwave? Who's the most notorious? Usually, yeah, usually communist bloc countries. I'm sure that even West pro Western have on occasion done their jamming, but the vast majority of jammers uh, were from the old Russian Confederation. But you don't hear that as much anymore that I'm aware of. Uh, Cuba, of course, trying to uh, jam anti-Castro transmissions coming out of Florida. You'll, you'll hear, hear jammers occasionally down there, like Radio Marti. Um, so they, they were primarily the communist bloc uh, countries that do the vast majority uh, of, the, uh, of that intentional jamming. I, I heard, probably, I was listening to, uh, and this is off track, uh, listening to uh, Havana, Cuba one night, and there was a, a female voice doing a newscast, and they were talking about President Bush. And, um, and you know, in our country, it's so divided. I mean, you have some people that like him, some people that don't, some people that hate him, you know. And uh, But I was listening to this newscast, and it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was humorous. I was laying on the floor laughing. Right. It was such a pitiful attempt at assassinating the guy, you know, as far uh, as, yeah. you know, character and, and morals and all. <laughs> it's just awful. I th- yeah. And I wonder, yeah. who do they get to write this copy? Who is it that does this? You know, that's something that, you know, right. it wasn't even worth jamming. But uh, anyhow, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to ask you about weird noises on shortwave. Now, what do you sure. hear? I mean, you're tuning around, and you're a seasoned shortwave listener. And and you're listening. You're you're going up and down the band, and you hear something. You and what does Bob Grove say? What in the world is that? Have you do you have that kind of reaction when you're when you're tuning around, or you've got it all pretty well? Uh, there for I you? have, I have. Although I've heard so many of these things that that finally have been resolved. That even when I hear uh, a new one, it's usually so similar to an older one, I have a darn good idea what it probably is. Uh, the vast majority of these are going to be, as I say, when, they, when they're sweeping up and down, they're going to be ionosons doing propagation tests. Um, if they are just, uh, um, you, you'll hear data noise on there, and you'll know you, that you're hearing data transmissions. Um, and, of course, one of the, the old-time 
all-time favorites that uh, we finally broke the identification and locations of these with the spy number stations. Monitoring Times did a series of these when we had a writer who now is deceased. His name was Havana Moon. He was an ex-spook for the United States, uh, and he really had terrific insight into the spy numbers transmissions. Uh, these are where you'd have a recorded voice giving uh, generally four or five letter groups. Uh, it could be in Spanish, could be in English. Generally, when you were hearing them in English, uh, they are being transmitted to uh, English-speaking implants in another country, usually Cuba. When you hear the Spanish, they are off more than likely coming out, and, and these are still on from uh, near Havana. There's a transmitting site down there, um, and when you hear the that voice um, in Spanish, a, a woman's voice giving four or five letter number groups, uh, those are generally beamed up towards uh, Cuban uh, spies here in the United States. And these have been going on for just decades, just right after World War II they began, of course, when the wall went up. Um, so they're still going on, as, but they're, they're primarily, we have determined pretty satisfactorily from our standpoint, that they are pretty much just housekeeping messages, like um, uh, you would translate one as uh, you uh, meet your... Um, meet your subject at the usual place at the usual time and, and things like that rather than um, uh, stand by we're about to push the red button <laughs> it's not not anything quite of uh, of that class uh, well, you know, these are the spy number stations and they're all over the world in all different languages serving all different purposes uh, but but all with that basic one theme of of just delivering to an insurgent uh, placement somewhere just a routine message uh, to a spy. Well, you know, I guess uh, hearing those number stations, and they have been publicized. People know about them. And uh, and I I think there's so much intrigue, you know, that's been put into those things and people trying to decipher and decode them. I've often thought it would be interesting to put a commercial uh, shortwave station on and transmit numbers, and then you could sell advertising, you know, because there'd be those, there's so many people. <laughs> that's, a, that's a wonderful idea. People, it certainly is. People are, that are listening <laughs> to those things. Well, you know, I've wondered because, it, it, you know, shortwave has such a mystique. I mean, I remember as a kid when you would tune into a shortwave station, and I, I don't know, I guess maybe they still do this. Um, they would transmit like a, a portion of their national anthem or a piece of yeah. a song or something, and they would repeat that over and over mm-hmm. and over before they begin broadcasting. Yeah, well, these were primarily uh, used to hold the frequency so that uh, an interloper who wanted to come on and use it would know that something was was coming on and uh, that would hold the frequency open until they, they came on in that part of their broadcast day schedule. Yeah, I, I remember those really well. But that was all part of the flavor, you know, of, of shortwave radio. Sure. And, and, and I had I put out a tape called The Sounds of Shortwave, uh, curiously, a number of years ago, now a couple of decades ago, and we sold it very, very popular because it took all, or the vast majority, anyway, of these sounds, and I had a sample on of what it was, and then I would explain a, a narrative of exactly what it was doing. And that was, that was quite popular. I know back some time ago, um, we, we were doing a, a show, we started a show called... Uh, worldwide country 
and we were doing that on another shortwave station. So I took the beginnings. Actually, I, I went over and visited uh, Ronnie Millsap, who's also a ham and, and a friend of mine. And he sat on the keyboard right. and did the first few bars of the Tennessee Waltz, you know, two or three times, uh-huh. four or five times. And I remember I went ahead and we started every one of those shows with that because to me it was just reminiscent of old-time shortwave radio. Sure. And maybe even today. Right. I mean, I've heard a little bit of that even recently when I would tune around. And because uh, and, and George said, you, you don't do that anymore. That's not done anymore. We don't do this anymore. You know? You know, and I said, hey, you know what? I'm going to do this because I just I like the way it sounds. You know, when I'm tuning in, I hear that Tennessee waltz coming in. Just a few first few bars, you know. <laughs> Anyways, right. but I always thought that was so cool. You know, tune in these stations and here they would be. They'd come on with the first. And of course, it was a you know, if it was out of the country. You didn't recognize their national anthem as to what it was. But you knew that had to be that country's national anthem, and that's what they were doing, mm-hmm, was broadcasting sure. a few yep. bars of that. The thing. chimes of, uh, from Big Ben was another one. BBC, you'd often hear that one. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, trying to remember, I, you know, I can I can hum all of these, but I can't recall exactly to whom they, they were assigned. But, yes, you're right. The IDs were always very colorful, um, and that was, uh, you, you would hear the flamingos with Transworld Radio, they would say, from the island of the flamingos, you know, and they'd play. You hear the little mm-hmm. birds chirping in the background, and of course, right, uh, ACJB's right. Voice of the Andes, and I can't remember, maybe they just said Voice of the Andes, but it seems like there was. I think they just had the Voice of the Andes. I don't think there were any sound effects in that. But they were all pretty, pretty creative, and they stuck in your head. And, you know, it's, it's stuff that stays in your head, almost like television commercials where they say, you know, uh, Winston tastes good like a, you know, you know what that is, you know. Yeah, that's right. So they were they were staples in the, that power of uh, of repetition. Do you think that shortwave has lost anything, or do you think that it's moved forward? Uh, is it more interesting now, or do you think it was more interesting then? Well, uh, that's that's a series of very, very good questions. There's no question at all that if you turn on shortwave any time of day or night you'll find some very very interesting stuff um, depend, there's been a shift I think in the uh, general languages uh, on there and I'm not I'm not really sure I could define which way it went but it's a little different from from what I used to hear uh, the political thrust would be different as different uh, countries have now resolved their original philosophies into a new philosophy, so there are changes that you will hear on there that you would be different from what you heard. I don't think that shortwave is any less interesting. The um, the thing which is missing is not so much in, in the SWL, the, the broadcasting aspect, as in the two-way communications uh, utilities. That has changed dramatically. Um, there is far less voice on there. Uh, and those transmissions which need to utilize voice are often scrambled. Uh, you don't, uh, you're not likely to hear them as much in clear speech anymore. Uh, the hams, of course, used to be AM, and you didn't even need a, a, a beat frequency oscillator or product detector on a receiver. You just tune it in uh, as the upper extension of, of your dad's radio uh, into the short wave range, and there were the hams talking in amplitude modulation. Um, now, of course, it's single sideband, and uh, there's some uh, some transmitters now which are utilizing legal uh, digitizers, so that uh, it's not a question of using a product detector now to hear single sideband. You actually have to have a digital demodulator for these voices. So, so there are changes in that respect. But as I say, 
it's almost exclusively in the utilities monitoring that has had the dramatic changes, not so much uh, into the uh, short wave spectrum, uh, broadcast spectrum, although we do know, of course, there are some experiments going on for, for digital techniques there as, as well. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back with Bob Grove with Monitoring Times right after this. The Light Pack Systems Induction Lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. Light Pack Induction Lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year. With a failure rate of less than 10%, LightPak offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs as well as indirect costs. LightPak offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings. Also, lasting up to five times longer than standard lighting options. LightPak's quality shines through with their standard 10-year warranty on all products. Call today for your free demonstration. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com. That's lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. If you already own a TW-2010 Adventurer or Backpacker antenna, and you want to use the antenna on 40 meters, you can get the Transworld Adventurer 4040 array box in center section only right now only 139.95 139.95 that puts you on 40 meters and you're dealing with the exact same antenna structure that has made the TW2010 Transworld Adventurer so famous the black powder coating the stealth the way the antenna is able to hide and in addition to that it's portable if you want to take it with you of course, you can get it with a deluxe travel bag. It's just fantastic. Go to the website and check it out, transworldantennas.com. That's transworldantennas.com. If you can't remember Transworld Antennas, just remember to go to our website at QSO, tedrandall.com, T-E-D-R-A-N-D-A-L-L.com, and click on the link for Transworld Antennas. Take a look at this brand-new Adventurer 4040. Here at QSO, we've got something new, and that's a prize closet. And we are in the process of filling that prize closet up. And we're going to be telling you on the air some of the items that we've got in the prize closet. If you'd like to win some of these things, we'd love to see you do that. But what you've got to do is send us an email. Go up to the website, tedrandall.com or qsoradioshow.com. And when you go to that website, just simply send us an email. Say hello. Tell us where you're listening, how the signal's coming in. If you're listening by podcast, tell us how you have joined this radio show. And then put a little note in there that says, I want to win. And we'll put your name in the hat. And we will have a drawing twice a month. And we're going to be giving away what's in our prize closet. Now, I can't tell you everything that's in there so far. But we'll be posting those items up on the website, and we'll be telling you about them on the air. But don't miss out. Send us an email and put in that email, I want to win. And let's see who the lucky winners will be. We're back with Bob Grove with Monitoring Times. 
And uh, now that I know what MERS is and I know what ionosones are, <laughs> um, <laughs> is it necessary when listening to shortwave or even with your when, and even with monitoring, you know, police and public safety and, and all that sort of thing? Is it is it necessary to have a large antenna farm uh, in your backyard that the neighbors question exactly what it is that you're doing and you have homeland security <laughs> right, monitoring what it is you're up to? Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, it certainly isn't. As a matter of fact, um, some of the most effective antennas that are on the market are small. We'll, we'll talk about the since VHF UHF scanner antennas are necessarily smaller anyway by nature of the the wavelengths of those higher frequencies um, the the question is almost moot location just like you know location 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 that's the most the three most important things in determining what kind of an antenna you want um, the ideal antenna for even short wave listening is not large and certainly isn't for scanner listening uh, the ideal antenna design is to put it outside of your home and as high as practical. And when you get into the very high frequencies, up into the several hundred megahertz, you have to start paying some attention to the type of coaxial cable you use as well. When you do have an outside antenna, always use coaxial cable. Never just plan on just bringing a wire on down. And the reason that wire then becomes part of the antenna and it picks up signals. Well, that sounds good, except the signals it starts to pick up as it comes into your window and into the house, of course, um, are signals from your computer, from your electrical lights, from your entertainment center, from your cordless phones. <clears throat> and by the time you're through, uh, sometimes it's difficult to, to separate the hash uh, from the legitimate uh, reception signals. So um, it is important to have the shielding that's afforded by good coax. For short wave, um, generally I say an antenna anywhere from 20 to 40 feet long is really absolutely sufficient. And uh, so a question which obviously comes up is, well, oh gosh, Bob, if, if 40, to 40 feet picks up signals well, wouldn't 140 feet pick it up even better? And the answer is absolutely not. Um, as a matter of fact, what often happens here is when you have larger and larger antennas, you invite uh, the more effective reception of lower frequencies, such as your, local, your, your neighborhood 50,000-watt AM station, which can then overpower your radio and give you problems in intermod and images throughout the short wave spectrum. Whereas if you have a smaller antenna, you're not as likely to have uh, the, the resonant pickup of those signals or near resonant pickup of those signals as you do good resonant reception of short wave signals. Um, if you're putting up a horizontal antenna, then your maximum pickup is going to be off the sides, in other words, perpendicular to the axis of the wire. And that, that means down below it and up above it as well. Uh, it's, it's sort of like a donut rolling uh, on its edge if you, if you want to picture the field in which uh, it's with the axis running through the hole of the donut. Um, the longer the antenna, the more it is excessive in terms of the wavelength of the stations you want to hear on shortwave, and now the pattern that it picks up from starts to favor the ends of the antenna rather than off the sides. It's like a clover leaf pattern. So these are things you, you must think about. If you want to aim an antenna for shortwave listening, Get yourself a globe and 
take a piece of string or thread and stretch it between you and the place you want to hear. That's going to give you the compass direction that you want the broad side of the antenna to face, not not end-to-end wire pointing there, but the broad side perpendicular to the wire, and that's uh, uh, that's a good rule of thumb. Um, for scan and and by the way, uh, what happens inside? There are antennas available that you can put inside. We we sell a number of them at Grove Enterprises, which of course is our our retail store, um, and uh, the. Active antennas are very popular. This, of course, is an amplified antenna, where uh, you have a, a small three- or four-foot whip antenna with a built-in amplifier, and the coax runs on down to your receiving point, and the power runs right up the coax to feed it, uh, along with the signal coming down. These are very effective. Um, the, the downside, of course, of active antennas is the fact that they would be a little more vulnerable to overload because they have transistors in them that can handle all a cert, only a certain range of what we call dynamic range, that is, the, the weakest to the strongest signals, whereas a wire, which is what we'd call a passive antenna, can have an infinite range, you know, without causing spurious signals within it. It doesn't have any electronics to do that with. So the active antenna does have a little more vulnerability to that, plus the fact it can add a little bit of hiss to the uh, signal, this is especially true at the higher frequencies, um, and of course they require power. They can burn out, and uh, they're more expensive. So if you can put up a passive wire antenna, you're always going to be better off for it. Um, in the scanner scene, there are many multiband antennas out there. Uh, the discone has become a perennial favorite, uh, undeservedly, because it really has no gain whatsoever. It just has the wide frequency range, which itself is good, especially if you want to hear local stuff. But um, if you want to hear any real distance, you need an antenna uh, that provides gain, and this we call a beam antenna. Most popular there are the, the log periodic dipole arrays, which you recognize as having a whole series of uh, elements vertically placed one after the other so that the, they taper from the longest pair of elements at the back to the shortest pair of elements in the front. And um, of those, probably the create dipole uh, log periodic dipole array is one of the most popular, and of course the the Grove Scantenna is the first of the type to ever come out. We've had that now for some 25, almost 30 years on the market, and uh, in in various forms as it's been improved. When, so when you're when you're dealing, those are very very good antennas. When you're dealing with scanner antennas, what about polarization? Polarization for scanner antennas should always be vertical. Now, over long distances and in cities where signals are likely to bounce around a lot, the polarity is not quite as, uh, uh, as important to match. But, once again, make it, make it vertical, and you're going to be picking up the, uh, uh, the vast majority of signals in the vertical polarization. And the reason they're vertically polarized is that most of the communications are mobile to base, and the mobile has a whip on it, vertically polarized. Uh, on your you, your Grove Enterprises, you have a website where folks can go and look at some of these antennas? Yeah, sure it is. It's uh, just grove-ent for enterprises, grove-ent.com. Grove-ent. And, of course, Monitoring Times is just monitoringtimes.com. And can they, can they get to Grove Enterprises from the Monitoring Times site? 
I think they can. I've never, <laughs> I've not tried doing it since, of course, after a quarter of a century or more. I've got it pretty well memorized, both of these sites. But uh, I believe you can get to either one from the other. I'm thinking because there's a lot of folks I'm sure would like to look at pictures and, and see what these things look like and uh, and read some descriptions. You know, I you know, and you after you build a bunch of antennas, you're always intrigued by wanting to buy one or two, you know, and and see how they work sure. as compared to what you know as a oh, reference. Absolutely, you know, I've got a disc cone here and sitting sitting in a box I have yet to assemble. You've got you know all these little <laughs> screw on pieces. It's I've also in, in the garage I also have an MFJ vertical. Uh, it uh, it has a, a million pieces uh, that uh, uh-huh. you know. I don't. I don't know. Oh, I'll bet you. I bet that'll that probably the HF range. Yeah, that'll probably shortwave. Yeah, that'll probably go to Hamfest somewhere before I have a chance to actually put it together. <laughs> right. It's not already built. You know. Um, I was going to ask what in terms of, um, of of developments in shortwave. We've got all sorts of digital modes scrambling and things going on. Where do you see that going? We will continue to see more and more of that uh, happening. The, the scrambling, uh, there's been an interesting, an interesting flip there. For years, we've seen the predictions that scanner monitoring is not what it used to be and that we're going to see its demise. Uh, right up to this date, scanners have followed the changes uh, in, in this gradual transition of technology. Um, and the only thing that scan- scanners are unable to legally decode, and there are no even illegal uh, decoders out there available, um, are the truly scrambled communications you hear. However, there's been uh, a mandate which has been set by the FCC that um, the scanners, uh, or not scanners, but, but VHF, UHF public safety communications are going to have to adopt the, what's called the uh, APCO, which is Associated Police Communications Officer, Officers, uh, the APCO Project 25 mode. And uh, this is a digital mode. However, the um, mode includes a digitization which is available to the public. It's an open algorithm. And uh, so that is very good news for the scanner, scanner monitor that uh, the vast majority of the P25 uh, digital installations out there are utilizing the readily receivable setting on that, uh, the digital uh, communications, which uh, is now being included in the upper level of scanners which are being uh, sold here in the United States. So it looks as though we reached a plateau. It looked as though we'd see declining use. Now it looks like we're going to see the availability of more and more communications, even using the digital voice communications that will be receivable by the public. We are out of time. I want to thank you so much for being on board with us My today. My pleasure. Enjoyed it, Ted. Once again, this is Bob Grove we're talking to here Monitoring Times Magazine, the website, monitoringtimes.com. And uh, if you want to look at some, some interesting antennas, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's grove-ent.com. Am, right. I, am I correct on that? That's it. All righty. Thank you so much, sir. We want to have you come back again soon. You can transform any surface into a self-cleaning, antibacterial, antifungal, mold-free surface. Let it purify your surrounding air and protect your building interior and exterior from environmental contamination. Any germs, oils, fumes, smells, or even little algae spores which land on a surface near Tidox will be remediated in minutes. 
Any exterior building surface we wish to keep clean needs to receive a little light and be coated with Tidox. Tidox coating destroys viruses, bacteria, odor, harmful gases, allergens, air and water pollutants, and protects treated surfaces against the growth of algae, fungus, and mold. For more information on how you can use Tidox in your home or your place of business, contact Lightpack Systems. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com, and send us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're listening, how the signal's coming in, or if you're listening by podcast. But be sure and put on that email, I want to win, because we're going to have some really, really neat things to give away. We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com or tedrandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and we'll look for your email. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of QSO. A special thanks to our guests, Wayne Green, the founder of 73 Magazine, along with Bob Grove, the publisher of Monitoring Times. Thank you for listening to QSO. Be sure and tune in again next week, same time, same station for QSO.